You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 324A by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Fourth Dimension. This is the uh, Section 12, or Lecture 12, Collections of Questions and Answers Around the Fourth Dimension, translated by Catherine Krieger. Questions and Answers, Stuttgart, January 15, 1921. A question about the need for the anthroposophical position on the Einstein problem. Why must we suddenly reverse the sign when we leave the realm of the tangible for the ether? Steiner's answer. Of course, this also can be done without taking a specifically anthroposophical position, simply by studying the phenomena, as is done in many other scientific fields. I illustrated an unbiased view of the phenomena of so-called heat theory in a course I gave to a small audience here a few months ago. We then must attempt to express this phenomena in mathematical formulas. The peculiar feature of such formulas is that they are correct only when they correspond to processes we can observe, that is, when the results of the formulas correspond to and can be verified by reality. If you want to understand what happens when a gas contained under pressure is heated, It is artificial to apply the formulas worked out by Clausius and others, although it can be done. As is officially admitted today, however, that the facts do not correspond to the formulas. In connection with Einstein's theory, it is strange to note the experiments that have been conducted. These experiments were set up on the supposition that a certain theory was correct. Because the experiments did not confirm the theory, another theory, based exclusively on experiments that exist only in thought, was then developed. In contrast, if you attempt to deal with the heat phenomena by simply inserting the relevant positive and negative signs into the formulas, depending on whether you are dealing with conductive or radiant heat, you will find that reality confirms the formulas. Admittedly, when we move on to other imponderables, simply changing the sign to negative is not enough, and we must include other considerations. We must imagine that forces in the tangible realm work radially, while those belonging to the etheric realm come from the periphery, have negative values, and work only within a circular area. Thus, when we move on to other imponderables, we must insert the corresponding values differently. We then will find that we arrive at formulas that are verified by actual phenomena. Anyone can take this approach, with or without becoming involved in anthroposophy. I would like to emphasize a different point here. You must not think that what I told you in these four lectures simply stems from my anthroposophical approach. I have told you these things because they are true. The so-called anthroposophical approach 
does not anticipate phenomena. It results from them. It is simply the consequence of an appropriate overview. If we attempt to recognize and understand objects and events without bias, an anthroposophical approach can result. The prospects for what I have told you would be poor if we had to take a biased view as our starting point, but that is not the case. We must pursue the relevant phenomena on a strictly empirical basis. Although I still maintain that the anthroposophical approach can be the best approach, it is only the end result. After answering other questions, Rudolf Steiner says in conclusion, I can emphasize repeatedly only that the anthroposophically oriented spiritual science that is developing here in Stuttgart is not a sectarian or amateurish movement. Although its forces are still weak, it is striving for real, authentic science. The more you test spiritual science, the more you will realize that it is a match for any scientific method of testing. The many misunderstandings to which spiritual science is subject today are not the results of a truly scientific approach. The opponents of spiritual science battle it not because they themselves are too scientific, but because they are not scientific enough, as further investigation will show. In future, however, we must become more scientific, rather than less so. Science must make real progress. Namely, it must lead us into the spiritual realm as accurately as it leads us into the material realm. Questions and Answers, Dornock, April 7, 1921 Question It has been said that the three dimensions of space differ in structure. Where does this difference lie? Rudolf Steiner replies, This statement was never formulated like that. Quote, the three dimensions of space differ in structure, close quote, you are probably referring to the following thought. First, we have mathematical space, which we imagine, if indeed we imagine it with any precision at all, as consisting of three perpendicular dimensions or directions, which we define by means of a coordinate system on three perpendicular axes. When we consider this space from the usual mathematical perspective, we treat the three dimensions as if they were exactly the same. We make so little distinction between the dimensions of up and down, right and left, and forward and backward, that we even can believe them to be interchangeable. In terms of merely mathematical space, it ultimately makes no difference whether we say that the plane of the y-axis, which is perpendicular to the plane formed by the x and z axes, which are also perpendicular to each other, is, in quotes, horizontal or, in quotes, vertical. We are equally unconcerned about the boundedness of this type of space, which does not mean that we ordinarily get so far as to imagine it as limitless. We simply do not worry about its limits. We assume that from any point on the x-axis, for example, we can continue to move along the axis indefinitely without ever reaching the end. During the 19th century, meta-geometry presented many ideas contrary to this Euclidean concept of space. Let me simply remind you, for example, how Raymond distinguished between the limitlessness of space 
and the infinity of space. From the perspective of purely conceptual thinking, too, there is no need to assume that limitlessness and infinity are identical. Take the outer surface of a sphere, for instance. When you draw on such a surface, you never encounter any spatial limit that prevents you from continuing your drawing. Eventually, of course, you will intersect your previous drawing, but as long as you remain on the sphere's surface, you will never encounter a boundary that forces you to stop. Thus you can say that a sphere's surface is limitless with regard to your ability to draw on it. This does not mean, however, that anyone claims that such a surface is infinite. In this way, on a purely conceptual level, we can distinguish between limitlessness and infinity. Under specific mathematical conditions, This distinction also can be extended to space as a whole. If we imagine that we never will be hindered from extending an X or Y axis by continuing to add segments to it, this property of space speaks for its limitlessness, but not for its infinity. The fact that I can continue adding segments indefinitely does not mean that space is necessarily infinite. It might be simply limitless. We must distinguish between these two concepts. If space is limitless but not infinite, we can assume that it is inherently curved and returns to its starting point in some way, just as a spherical surface does. Certain ideas in modern metageometry depend on such assumptions. It is not easy to raise objections to these assumptions, because we cannot conclude that space is infinite from our experience of it equally well could be curved and finite. I cannot carry this train of thought to its conclusion, of course, without explaining almost all of recent meta-geometry. Treatises by Riemann, Gauss, and others are readily available, however, and will provide you with plenty of food for thought if you are interested in mathematical ideas of this sort. These are the purely mathematical arguments against the fixed, neutral space of Euclidean geometry. All of the arguments I have mentioned so far are based purely on the concept of limitlessness. Your question, however, is rooted elsewhere in the idea that space, the space of our calculations and the space we encounter in analytical geometry, for example, when we are dealing with a coordinate system of three perpendicular axes, is an abstraction. And what is an abstraction? this question must be answered first. It is important to know whether we are restricted to an abstract idea of space. Is abstract space the only space we can talk about? To put it better, if this abstract concept of space is the only one we are justified in speaking of, only one objection is possible, and this one objection has been raised adequately by Raymond's geometry or other forms of metageometry. Kant's definitions of space, for example, rest soundly on a very abstract concept of space. His concept is initially unconcerned with limitlessness or infinity. In the course of the 19th century, this concept of space was shattered, also internally, with regard to its conceptual content, by mathematics. 
it is impossible to imagine applying Kant's definition to a space that is limitless but not infinite. Much of what Kant presents later in his title Critique of Pure Reason, his theory of paralogisms, for example, would begin to totter if we were forced to substitute the concept of a limitless curved space. I know that this concept of curved space poses problems for our ordinary way of imagining things. But from the purely mathematical or geometric perspective, the only possible argument against the assumption that space is curved is that it forces us to move into a realm of pure abstraction that is initially quite remote from reality. Looking at the situation more closely, we discover that a curious circular argument exists in the derivations of modern metageometry, namely that we arrive at them by taking as our starting point the ideas of Euclidean geometry, which is unconcerned with any limitations of space. We then move on to certain derivative ideas, such as those that apply to the surface of a sphere. On the basis of these derivatives and the forms that result, we can undertake certain transpositions and then make in reinterpretations of space. Everything we say, however, presupposes Euclidean coordinate geometry. Under this presupposition, we get a specific rate of curvature. We arrive at the derivations. All this calculation presupposes Euclidean geometry. Here we come to a turning point, however. We use ideas such as the rate of curvature, which we developed only with the help of Euclidean geometry, to arrive at another idea that can lead to a new view and an interpretation of what we have gained from the curved forms. Essentially, we are functioning in a realm remote from reality by deriving abstractions from abstractions. This activity is justified only when an empirical reality forces us to align ourselves with the results of such abstractions. Thus the question is, where does abstract space correspond to our experience? Space is such as Euclid imagined it, is an abstraction. Where does its perceptible empirical aspect lie? We must take our human experience of space as our starting point. We actually perceive only one dimension of space, namely the dimension of depth, as a result of our own active experience. This active perception of depth is based on a process in our consciousness that we very frequently overlook. This active perception, however, is very different from the idea of a plane of extension in two dimensions. When we look out into the world with both eyes, these two dimensions are not the result of our own soul activity. They are there as givens, while the third dimension comes about as a result of activity that usually does not become conscious. We need to work at recognizing depths, at knowing how distant an object is from us. We do not work out the extent of a plane. Direct perception provides us with that knowledge. We do, however, use both eyes to work out the dimension of depth. The way we experience depth lies very close to the boundary between the conscious and the unconscious. 
But when we learn to pay attention to such processes, we know that the never fully conscious activity of estimating depth, it is at most semi-conscious or one-third conscious, more closely approximates a rational activity, an active soul process, than does seeing objects only in a plane. In this way we actively acquire one dimension of three-dimensional space on behalf of our objective consciousness. And we are forced to say that our upright position contributes a quality to the dimension of depth, that is, forward and backward, that makes it non-interchangeable with any other dimension. The fact that we stand there actively experiencing this dimension makes it non-interchangeable with any other dimension. For the individual human being, the dimension of depth is not interchangeable with the other dimensions. It is also true that our perception of two-dimensionality, that is of up and down and right and left, even when these two dimensions are in front of us, is associated with different parts of the brain. This perception is inherent in the sensory process of seeing, while the third dimension arises for us in parts of the brain located very close to the centers associated with rational activity. Thus we see that even in terms of our experience, the third dimension arises in a way that is different from the other two dimensions. When we rise to the level of imagination, however, we leave our experience of the third dimension behind and see in two dimensions. At this level we must work to experience right and left, just as experiencing forward and backward in our ordinary consciousness requires work of which we are not fully aware. And finally, when we rise to the level of inspiration, the same is true of the dimension of above and below. As far as our ordinary nerve-related perception is concerned, we must work to experience the third dimension. When we exclude the ordinary activity of this system, however, and turn directly to the rhythmic system, we experience the second dimension. In a certain respect, this is what happens when we rise to the level of imagination. I have not expressed this very precisely, but it will do for now. And we experience the first dimension when we rise to the level of inspiration, that is, to the third member of our human organization. What we encounter in abstract space proves to be exactly what it appears to be, because all of our mathematical accomplishments come from within ourselves. The mathematical consequence, threefold space, is something we derive from ourselves. When we move down to the levels of suprasensible perception, the result is not abstract space with three equivalent directions but rather three different values for the three different dimensions of forward and backward, right and left, and above and below. These dimensions are not interchangeable. We can then conclude that we also need not imagine the three dimensions as having the same intensity, which is essentially how we imagine the x, y, and z axes in Euclidean space. If we want to abide by the equations of analytical geometry, we must see the x, y, and z axes as equivalent in intensity. If we make the x-axis larger, 
stretching it with a certain intensity as if it were elastic, the Y and Z axes must grow with the same intensity. In other words, when I apply a certain intensity to expanding one dimension, the force of expansion must be the same for all three axes, that is, all three dimensions of Euclidean space. That is why I would like to call this type of space, in quotes, fixed space. Fixed space is an abstraction of real space, which is developed from within the human being. And the principle of equivalent intensity does not apply to real space. When we consider real space, we can no longer say that the intensity of expansion is the same for all three dimensions. Instead, it depends on human proportions, which are the result of spatial expansion intensities. For example, take the y-axis, the up-down direction. We must imagine its expansion intensity as greater than that of the x-axis, which corresponds to the left-right direction. The formula that is an abstract expression of real space, we must be aware that this formula too is an abstraction, describes an ellipsoid with three axes. Suprasensible perception dwells within the three very different expansion possibilities of this triaxial space. Our physical body provides direct experience of the three axes, and such experience tells us that this space also expresses the relationships among the effects of the heavenly bodies within it. Visualizing space in this way, we must also consider that everything we think of as existing in the three-dimensional universe cannot be accounted for if the expansion intensity of the x, y, and z axes is the same, as is the case in Euclidean space. We must imagine the universe with a configuration of its own, corresponding to an ellipsoid with three axes. The configuration of certain stars suggests that this idea is correct. For example, we usually say that our Milky Way galaxy is lens-shaped and so on. We cannot possibly imagine it as a sphere. We must find a different way of imagining it if we want to accommodate the facts of physics. The way we treat space demonstrates how poorly modern thinking coincides with nature. In ancient times and cultures, the concept of fixed space did not occur to anyone. We cannot even say that the original Euclidean geometry incorporated a clear idea of fixed space with three equal expansion intensities and three perpendicular lines. It was only in fairly recent times when abstraction became an essential attribute of our thinking and we began to apply calculations to Euclidean space that the abstract concept of space emerged. The knowledge available to people in ancient times was very similar to what can be redeveloped now on the basis of suprasensible insights. As you see, concepts that we depend on heavily and take for granted today assume a high degree of importance only because they work in a sphere that is foreign to reality. The space we reckon with today is one such abstraction, it is far removed from anything real experience can teach us. We are often content with abstractions today. We harp on empiricism, but 
we refer very frequently to abstractions without even being aware of doing so. We believe that we are dealing with real things in the real world. You can see, however, how badly our ideas need correction in this respect. Spiritual researchers do not simply ask if every idea they encounter is logical. Raymond's concept of space is thoroughly logical, though in a certain respect it depends on Euclidean space. It cannot be thought through to its conclusion, however, because we approach it by means of highly abstract thinking, and in this process our thinking is turned upside down because of one of the conclusions we draw. Spiritual researchers do not simply ask whether an idea is logical. They also ask whether it corresponds to reality. For them, that is the decisive factor in accepting or rejecting an idea. They accept an idea only if it corresponds to reality. Correspondence to reality will apply as a criterion when we begin to deal appropriately with such ideas as the justification of the theory of relativity. In itself, this theory is as logical as it can possibly be, because it is understood purely in the domain of logical abstractions. Nothing can be more logical than the theory of relativity. The other question, however, is whether we can act on it. If you simply look at the analogies presented in support of this theory, you will discover that they are very foreign to reality. They are simply ideas being tossed around. The proponents of relativity theory tell us that these ideas are there only as symbols to help us visualize the issues. They are not merely symbols, however. Without them, the entire process would be left hanging in the air. This, then, is what I wanted to say in reference to your question. As you see, there is no easy answer to questions that touch on such domains. Questions and Answers, Dornock, August 26, 1921 Question. Are we meant to understand that the sun moves through space in a spiral, and that the earth also moves in a spiral as it follows the sun, and therefore does not revolve around the sun? Steiner's reply. In a longer lecture series, it would be relatively easy to discuss these issues in more detail. I have referred to them only briefly here. It is almost impossible to explain their foundations in a few words. Let me begin to respond to your question by simply summarizing the results of spiritual scientific research. First of all, any conclusions we draw about spatial relationships in the universe on the basis of observation and from specific perspectives are always one-sided. The Ptolemaic solar system represented a one-sided view, and so do all other models of the solar system, including the Copernican model. Our conclusions about the relationships of moving objects are based on our specific vantage point, and these relationships are invariably supplemented or altered by movements that cannot be measured from that perspective. Having stated this cautious presupposition, I ask you to consider another spiritual scientific finding that will help us develop a view of the relationship of the Earth's movement to that of the Sun we must imagine that the sun moves through space on a curved path. If we trace this curve far enough, it proves to be a complicated spiral form. 
A simplified version looks like this, figure 65a. The Earth moves along the same path, following the Sun. When you consider the Earth's possible locations in relationship to the Sun, you discover that when the Earth is here, an observer would have to look to the right to see the Sun. See figure 65b. Now let me sketch another possible location. The arrow indicates the direction of view. In the first instance, we saw the Sun by looking in one direction, and now we see it by looking in the opposite direction. As you will easily understand if you visualize this model correctly, the consequence of the Earth following the Sun is that we see the Sun first from one side and then from the other, and the Earth appears to move around the Sun in a circular or elliptical orbit. The primary component of this movement, the fact that the Earth follows the Sun, is differentiated still further by certain other relationships that would take hours to explain. The truth of the matter, however, is that only our direction of view rotates. As I said, this summary represents the results of lengthy spiritual scientific investigations and is complicated even more when we take other relationships into account. We must realize that as we gain a better overview of the sun's movements, the simple lines we use to describe the Copernican system to school children become increasingly complex until ultimately they can no longer be drawn at all and fall out of the spatial realm altogether. This is what I wanted to say from the perspective of spiritual science. From the perspective of the history of the physical sciences, I would like to comment that what we find so striking today about the research results I outlined above is inherent in the Copernican view. Copernicus postulated three laws. The first states that the earth rotates around its own axis, the second that the earth revolves around the sun, and the third that the earth's movement around the sun provides only a provisional explanation on the conceptual level, while in fact the earth stands in a fixed relationship to the sun. This third law proves that Copernicus was truly convinced that the second movement he describes, the earth's revolution around the sun, was merely a convention assumed for the convenience of certain calculations, and that he did not intend to state it as a fact. Today we consistently disregard this third law and believe that the Copernican model of the solar system encompasses only the first two laws. If we were truly to study the entire Copernican view, however, we would quickly conclude that this third law is indeed necessary simply on the basis of astronomical calculations. You see what often happens in the history of science. And that's the end of section 12.